0: Our lectionary reading for week 2 of Advent comes from Mark 1. It says, and this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written, Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, The way of the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven of coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. John announced, someone is coming soon who is greater than I, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave, and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Advent is about tapping into this ancient um, act of waiting, this ancient process of waiting. And last week, we learned that it's not um, like an unfocused waiting. It's not just a random waiting. Um, it, it is a, a process or a patterned Waiting. It kind of guides us through this waiting process and gives some shape to it. And last week we learned that, um, about hope, that the first thing we do in the Advent season is, is tap into this concept of hope. And it's not like a pie in the sky or daydreamy kind of hope. It's a fully informed, aware hope where we actually take time to contemplate the terrible state of the world today, just how bad things are. We actually open our eyes to the suffering and the injustice and the oppression and just the terrible things that go on in the world, the pain and the hurt and the loneliness. And we look at those things and we turn them full in the face and embrace just how bad things are. And in that kind of painful place, when we really contemplate how bad things are, we allow that to stir in us this hope in Jesus, this Desire to see something better, this desire to see Jesus make things better and make things right. And so it's kind of a two-edged sword, kind of two sides of the same coin. We embrace the brokenness so that we can hope for something better, so that we can daydream of a day when Jesus will return. And then we wait for that. It, it sets off the waiting. And this is what make, makes Advent kind of different than Christmas as Christmas is is basically a birthday party. It's celebrating something that happened, something in the past that happened. And Advent, as we learned last week, is actually a future past kind of thing. We look back at the the coming of Jesus on Christmas, but historically the church has also used this season to look forward to the coming of Jesus when he will return and fix what is broken and make things better and bring justice. And so this, this historically um, has been the church's season to study and focus and look at the second coming of Jesus, um, which isn't typically like a, a Christmassy kind of thing that we talk about in times stuff. But I thought it was fun. So I did like a little bit of research this week. And, um, and I, these are just the well-known, published, um, like popularized uh, predictions of Jesus's coming where people actually made changes to things because they were positive he was coming this year and it, it got published and got a following the first one was in 500 um, a whole group of theologians including Irenaeus which if you do church history he was kind of a well-respected theologian um, predicted that Jesus would come back in 500 the next one was 796 um, a huge uh, group of Christians prepared for his coming and then in 1000 there was uh I mean, half the church, it seemed like, was expecting Jesus to come back in the year 1000. And when he didn't, they predicted 1033 that it would be a thousand years after his death rather than a thousand years after his birth. And that didn't happen. In uh, 1260, an Italian mystic um, got a following of people to believe Jesus was coming back. In 1370, it happened again. In 1500, Botticelli, the artist, um, actually predicted, said God spoke to him through his art that he was coming back in 1500. Um, And that they had been living in the tribulation up until that point. Um, In 1524, some astrologers said that Pisces lined up just right. And so Jesus should be back in 1524. Um, In 1525, the first group of Anabaptists um, expected Jesus' return. In 1533, I love this one. I actually read about this one quite a while. In 1533, a mathematician mathematically worked out um, a formula by which he predicted Jesus would come back in 1533. Um, 1673 was the first group of people that predicted Jesus' return on American soil. So he was the first Americans to get behind the second coming bandwagon. In 1694, a whole slew of people. I don't know what was special about that year. I never could figure it out. But a whole bunch of different people randomly predicted 1694. Um, 1700, Henry Archer calculated based off of some times in Daniel. He went from Julian the Apostate, this ruler that did some bad things. They went from him forward and said it should be 1700. 1757, um, uh, a pretty popular uh, theologian predicted that Jesus had returned. He just did it spiritually and not physically. And so he kind of declared the millennial age to have begun in 1794 um, or 1757. 1795, um of <laughs> a, a famous sailor who was later committed to an insane asylum predicted in 95 he'd come in 1814 a 64 year old woman claimed to be pregnant with jesus and said she would deliver on christmas day and that would set off the millennium and she died on christmas day and they did an autopsy to see if she was pregnant and she was not so they assumed that she had poisoned herself in 1829 was the was a huge um, society of people that predicted it. in 1836 john wesley asked actually predicted that jesus would return uh, 1844, kind of the precursor group to the Seventh-day Adventists, predicted Jesus' return would be that year. Um, in 1847, the guy that started the 1829 thing had a revamp, and he, he got the group going again um, for a reunion tour. In 1850, an Austrian musician um, said that Jesus spoke to him through his music, that he would uh, return in 1850. Um, in 1861, there was a, a huge group of people that didn't even plant crops that year. That was kind of their marker that they were believed that this was the year. They made no preparations for the year, didn't plant any crops because they were positive he was coming back in 1861. Um, 1863, the Christ Israelite Church predicted his return. In 1874, the Jehovah's Witnesses predicted his return. For the first time, they get a reunion tour too. two. Or two. In 1890, the ghost dance movement, this kind of blending of Christianity and Native American religion predicted his return. Um, In 1891, Joseph Smith and the Mormons predicted it. In 1914, the Jehovah's Witnesses had their reunion tour. In 1917, um, Sun Young Moon in Korea kind of started his. He had several over the next 13 years. In 1930, um, uh, kind of new age clairvoyant, predicted that um, he saw um, in the spirit world that Jesus would be back in 30, and then again in 39. This was kind of fun. Armstrong, who wrote a book, Jesus' return in 1975 or something. He predicted in 1935, 1943, 1972, and then 1975. um, And he sold books in every single one of those. Um, And then he finally predicted that Jesus would definitely be back before his death, and he died in 86. In 82, another New Age guru uh, predicted his return, and 88 was the big you know, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will, ha- rapture will Happen in 1988. In 94, um, there was another one, the book 1994, Question Mark, was a big one that sold a lot of copies. Jerry Falwell predicted in 99 there would be at least in the next 10 years. Um, obviously in the year 2000, I think I predicted it that year. I think we all got on board with that. Um, in 2011, um, a guy named Camping, um, who made the 94 prediction and sold books back then, made a new um, prediction for two thousand and eleven um, Ronald uh, Weinland predicted eleven and then twelve and then thirteen jack van Impey, um everybody 's favorite predicted two thousand and twelve and then uh, Mark Blitz uh, sold books at the lunar eclipse um, of two thousand and fifteen and so this has been a thing that 's been around for a while. This has been something that um, you know a lot of times we get caught up in the in the, do you think this stuff is the you know sign of the end times have you guys ever heard someone who Kind of digs into those questions,, blah, blah, blah. that is not new since five hundred they 've done that, so there's nothing you know like modern about that where we get into our newspaper and try to decide if these are the end times that 's been part of the kind of the church 's um, ethos for a long long time but what 's funny is biblically whenever it talks about the second coming it ha- it almost handles it the opposite way it doesn't it doesn 't do the big hubbub it doesn 't do the big kind of Stir up drama, kind of thing that everybody um, else seems to. Matthew 24 and 25, which is kind of Jesus' big, you can go ahead, which is kind of Jesus' big, uh, it's kind of known to be his big kind of prophetic speech. Um, He he touches on some things from Daniel and he talks about the, they asked him, how are we going to know? when you're coming back and what would be the signs of the times and he talks about that many are going to come in my name wars and rumors of wars there'll be earthquakes persecutions they'll desecrate the holy place we're all pretty familiar with this language this is stuff that we talk about quite a bit when we talk about the end times he references Daniel he talks about you know when these things start to happen run for the hills one will be taken one will be left um, many are going to say look here's the messiah and there's the messiah don't listen to him um, for this is just the beginning of tribulations and the sun's going to be darkened, and so is the moon, the, the parable of the fig tree. And he kind of says for the first time that I'm going to come like a thief in the night. And like we've kind of hung on to that phrase. Um, but does anybody know how this speech ends? Has anybody ever put this together? Does anybody know how this big focus talk on it, on the second coming, his return, Jesus' return to earth, might know how this ends? It's a a real popular um, uh, passage that we talk about all the time, but rarely do we tag it to this speech. Usually we kind of talk about it by itself, but it's actually part of this speech. Um, It's one we're familiar with. Go ahead and go to the next slide. It says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, all the holy angels will be with them, and He will sit on the throne of His glory, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides sheep from goats, and He will set The sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Go ahead to the next one. Then he wraps up with, uh, And the king will also answer and say, Assuredly, I say to you, In so much as you did this to the least of these, your brethren, you did it unto me. So Jesus' big teaching on second coming, he wraps it up with, Therefore, take care of people. Like Take care of people, especially those less fortunate than you. He didn't say, like, like, sell books and make a big drama and, you know, don't plant crops. Like, he, he said, I'm coming. Here's how you're going to know I'm coming, and here's what you do until then. You take care of people. You visit the, the, the imprisoned. You feed the hungry. You give drink to the thirsty. You clothe the naked. And so his, his punchline to the second coming is to be a good person. Take care of people. And the thing I love about this passage is, is the people who did it, this is my favorite part, the people who did it were just as shocked as anybody else. Jesus said, he's like, come, because, those, because when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you gave me clothes. When I was in prison, you, you came and visited me. And their response was, whoa, when did we do any of this? I don't remember doing any of this. Like, When did I ever see you hungry or you naked or you thirsty or you imprisoned? And he was like, when you did this the least of the, my brothers. These people weren't like out trying to be pious they were just being good people. They were just living with a sense of justice. So uh, this, holds, this holds steady. Peter does it too. Let's go to the next slide real quick. Peter does it. He says, But in, that, in the day of the Lord, it will come as a thief in the night, uh, in which the heavens will pass away by a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. But the earth, uh, both the earth and the works that are in it, will be burned up. Therefore, beloved brethren... Looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, without spot or blameless. Uh, You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall away uh, from your own steadfastness, lest being led away uh, with the error of the wicked. So, Peter's big conclusion to talk about the second coming is therefore, just live in peace and steadfast. Like, just do what's right. Because someday Jesus is coming again. One more. Paul does it too. First Thessalonians. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away by a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it. Nope, that's Peter again. Sorry. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Therefore, do not sleep as others do, but just watch and be sober. So I love the the second coming as we look at it uh, biblically. It's supposed to be a calming thing. It's not supposed to whip us up into a frenzy. It's supposed to comfort us. In fact, Paul concludes with this. Go to the next slide. He concludes his passage with, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you are also doing. That's how he ends his talk about the Lord's coming. Comfort one another. Give peace to one another. So Advent, this waiting on Jesus, includes looking forward to Jesus' return. And that's supposed to be a comfort. It's supposed to give us peace. It's supposed to bring peace to us as we remember that he's coming back. But it can be hard sometimes to look forward to something that we've been waiting for for a long time, which is what makes Advent so beautiful is because we also get to look back and remember that he didn't leave us last time that he came. So what is peace? Go ahead and go to the next one. Uh, I looked up the definition of this, and this is interesting because it says freedom from disturbance, freedom from or the cessation of war or violence. And most of us understand and kind of resonate with these de- definitions that that it's, a, um, that it's a, an absence of turmoil. But what's interesting is the, the biblical definition of peace is quite different. Um, because we define peace in terms of an absence. And the Bible defines peace in terms of a presence. So it's not a subtraction of something. It's an addition of something. And this is just basic Thermodynamics. Um, you can go ahead and go to the next one. The, one of the kind of results of the second law of thermodynamics is that nature abhors a vacuum. Nature doesn't like a void. This is why when you suck the air out of something, it sucks air back in the other side. It creates a vacuum. Nature doesn't like vacuum. And so we can't ever, like it, this is an old you know, experiment. If I told everybody to close their eyes, clear their mind, and whatever you do, don't think of a pink elephant. Like, of course, the very first thing that pops into your brain is the pink elephant that you tried to take out of it, right? Because nature abhors a vacuum. It doesn't like nothingness. And yet we try to define peace as a nothingness, as this removal of all turmoil and strife. And if this thing would just go away, if I could just get rid of this, I would have peace. That would be my definition of peace. And that's not biblical. The biblical definition is a fullness. Go ahead and go to the next one. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known of, uh, uh, unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. That it's a, it's a presence of something, that the peace of God is, is there to guard as a presence. Go and go to the next one. Now may the hope of God fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope to the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be filled up with peace. One more. These things I have spoken to you <clears throat> while being present with you, but the Father, or the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither be afraid. So over and over again, the scripture, scripture speaks of priests as the presence of something. Not the absence of something, but the presence of something. So we can't assume that if we remove strife, if we remove... And we do this all the time. If I could just, you know, change jobs. If I could just get rid of this this turmoil or get rid of this, you know, I've got so much going on. If I could just fix that one thing. And then we're usually shocked when we do this, you know, all the time... Um, where, you know, we, we, just, we get in our head that if I could just get rid of this one situation or fix this one problem or, you know, eliminate this one thing, then I'll have peace. And then we do it, and then we find we have no peace. We still have no peace. And we're like, and, then, and usually it hits us as a shock, like why am I still in such turmoil? I got rid of the thing that I thought was, was causing the problem. And that's because we can't define peace as an absence of something. It's a presence of something. Peace comes by addition. Which brings us back to Advent. You can go to the next slide. Um, because Advent is when we focus on uh, second week of Advent, our peace week, when we light the peace candle, is when we focus on the good things in our life. The precursors is what I call them. When we read our passage tonight, it talks about how John was this precursor. And, and this was huge to the Jews because they would, they sat around like um, if Jesus had done 100% of what Jesus had done um, and there had been no John, there hadn't been this precursor, there hadn't been this like advanced um, warning, uh, then none of them would have bought it because they were, they were waiting on Elijah to return. They were waiting on this precursor to the final revelation of their Messiah. And so they needed John and so during Advent, one of the reasons our reading takes us there is because Advent is about recognizing the precursors. And for us, as we wait on the fullness of God's glory, as we wait on him to bring justice, to bring hope, to bring healing, to bring all the things we know he's going to bring when he returns, we, we, we find peace in the little ways he shows that now. All the little blessings, the little presences that he gives us. When we do see somebody um, step up for justice, we do see somebody you know, um, help out somebody else. We do see people, we see generosity, we see love, we see kindness, we see acceptance. And all these little warning signs remind us that we're on the right path. We're on the right path. He hasn't forgiven, forgotten us. He still shows up um, and is good to us. And so during Advent season, we, we tally these things. We focus on our blessings, and this is, this is something we, you know, we, we kind of tend to do it during Thanksgiving, and that's awesome, but we, during this week of Advent, we, we tally those things up. We look at how good he is to us. So in week one, we kind of focus on how bad the world is so we can stir up this hope for something better. And then week two, we, we hang on to all the many blessings that we have. And it's, and it's amazing when we actually take the time to do this because we can feel, there are times when we feel like, um, you know, life's just a struggle. It's just hard. It's just everything, you know, and then we actually step back to look at how much we have. And a lot of times it's pretty humbling because you're like, man, I can't believe I'm griping. Look at how much I've been given. Look at how, how beautiful this world is and everything I have. So God's little presences, his little precursors are what carry us through the Advent season. We focus on his goodness and how good he is to us. Elijah, can you go start heading them this way? And tonight, um, we're going to focus on one of those uh, blessings, and that is our children. We're going to do a baby dedication um, tonight because children are the absolute... Um, I guess, epitome of, of God's goodness and just the reminder that God is constantly um, thinking about the future and that there's always hope. If we've got, um, if we've got little ones that we're training to be decent human beings and to take goodness into the future, um, I say this all the time, you guys hear me say this all the time, it's pretty much too late for us. Like we're all too old to do any real damage um, for goodness in the world. That's not altogether true. But our best hope is to raise kids that love Jesus and want to make the world better. If we want to really impact the future, that is our best hope, is the children. Psalms 127, you can go there. (coughs) You can go to the next slide. Maybe there's two. There we go. It says, Behold, children are a heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior... So are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies at the gates. What I love about this little metaphor, sometimes we miss this, is that um, archers back then um, were kind of limited in combat because they could run out of ammo. Um, So they were really only effective while they had plenty of ammo. A swordsman never ran out of ammo. So he had a little different... um, little different job. So this, this statement of happy is the man whose quiver is full of them is a statement of peace. This is a statement of being well stocked. Like I am, I am well stocked and ready for the battle. And that's, the, that's kind of the metaphor I got Donnie Grinnebeck here like, like it's funny to hear me talk about quiver full. Right? <laughs> um, yes I am well stocked for the future. Um, I say that all the time. They're my retirement plan. I figured between a lot of them they should be able to split up my costs and take care of me in my old age but um but no they uh the this metaphor of a of the archer having a full quiver he's he's well loaded this is so an archer that's that's fully loaded with quivers has peace he's able to go to the gates and this he's able to talk to his enemy at the gates this is like trash talk is what it honestly, was you, you wouldn't dare go to the gates and t- talk crap like, try to storm my town, your mom's a blah, 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 you know. You wouldn't do that if you got like two arrows in your quiver. That's when you go and you negotiate a peace treaty, you know. <laughs> but when you've got a quiver full of arrows, you're well loaded, you're behind the wall, and you know I can sit here and do this all day, buddy. Just bring them on. Like, I got a quiver full of arrows. That's being ready to talk at the gates. Talk trash at the gates is what that means. So this is a this is a, I'm, I'm behind my fortress, I'm well taken care of, I have peace. Um, that's what this metaphor is about. And what he uses this metaphor for is to talk about children. When we have children in our midst, it gives us peace. Because we know the future is being taken care of. We know that we're, we're ready to talk trash behind the gates. Are the kids coming? Okay. I guess we're going to stand here and look at each other for a while because they're supposed to be in here right now. Now, um, so we're going to do...